0: This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest
1: we use it. The button stops here. Plug the radio in. Yeah, cause I can't. Welcome, everyone, to Evidence for Faith. This is the show where we help believers become thinkers and thinkers become believers. I'm Keith Kendricks. Hello, and I'm Kirk Hastings. We're going to be talking about the problems with evolution. Evidence for Faith is currently on five stations across the United States. You can check us out. Our website is evidenceforfaith.com. If you'd like to listen to podcasts, you can find them there, or you can listen to us on iTunes. If you'd like to email us, you can also email us at email at evidenceforfaith.com. Kirk, we've got a great show on evolution today. We're going to be talking about the problems with evolution, kind of a look at some of the evidences that are put forward to support evolution and what's wrong with them. In future shows, then we're going to look at the evidence that supports intelligent design and give the other side.
0: Yes, this is uh, very interesting. I'm looking over the notes you sent me for this uh, program, and uh, this is a subject that's near and dear to my heart. You know, I wrote a book that uh, has a lot of uh, this kind of evidence concerning creation and evolution in it. And you've got some stuff here I haven't even heard yet.
1: <laughs> yep, well, we try to stay on this program. We do try to stay on the cutting edge, so we've got the latest stuff. In fact, it's so cutting edge that I just came across a few minutes before the show, I just came across a news item. We won't be able to cover it in the, the thorough way I'd like to, but at least we'll put it out as a teaser. This is from Daily Mail. UK science and tech version of their online newspaper, and it says that the Luca, or the last universal common ancestor, turns out to be more sophisticated than we thought, say, biologists. So, again, I don't have the uh, everything analyzed completely yet to give it to you, but Basically, the general drift of this is that compared to modern bacteria, the first bacteria on Earth were much more sophisticated than bacteria today. And that goes along. Kirk, you know, we've had geneticists on the show that have talked about the fact that life is devolving, not evolving.
0: Yes. It's it's really amazing what's going on in microbiology today. And it's it's really... Uh, turning the, uh, the traditional beliefs about evolution and where we came from on its head. That's right.
1: Now, before we get into the topic today on evolution, we've got two emails that came in this week I thought I would read for everybody. This one is from Roy. He says, Hi, Keith. First, I would just like to appreciate you and your fine work. I've learned a lot from you. I particularly appreciate your humble style. Other people may have your knowledge but are more interested in hearing their own voices than being particularly useful. So I really appreciate it. <laughs> I listened to I listened to your logical fallacy series a while ago. That was tremendous. One thing that you suggested was listening to both sides of an argument and using that dialogue to make a decision about beliefs. That was a great idea. Then he says, you can tell that's sort of uh, you know, he's getting he wants me to look at it something differently. So his next paragraph is I was a little disappointed with your treatment on the evidence for the soul, though, particularly because of the strength of this biblical exegesis, which argues we are, only, we are actually only physical. And then he gives a uh, podcast from Glenn Peoples, who does a Bible study and talks about uh, his belief that we, are, we don't have souls, we're not dualistic, we're not soul and body, but we are just physical beings. Then he says, I would love to hear your opinion of it if you get a chance. So that email came in this week. I did just briefly get a little bit of chance to listen to the podcast from Glenn Peoples. And it sounds like an interesting topic. It's not the kind of thing that we would talk about so much on this show because it pertains mostly to an in-house disagreement or argument. You know, So uh, we try to discuss issues that are important to unbelievers and to maybe beginning Christians and talk about the difference between Christianity and other worldviews. We don't really talk that much on this show about arguments inside Christianity, which doctrine is more correct than another doctrine.
0: We're more into evidence rather than theology.
1: Yeah, exactly. So we have discussed a few doctrinal Issues occasionally, and we went over some basics, of course. And this doesn't fit into that basic category, although I guess I did talk a little bit about the dualism as a basic view of man. And actually, for me, the argument has not been in the past whether dualism versus physicalism has been true, but actually whether it's a dichotomy or a trichotomy, because many Christians believe that there's actually we are three parts we are physical, we have a soul, and a spirit, right? And so. You know, the physicalism never really fits into it. And of course, you know, it's not the popular belief. It's becoming more popular these days. I think the argument, though, really stems from a couple of issues. You know, the Old Testament view of this was divided in the time of Jesus. There were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the Sadducees didn't believe in souls, they didn't believe in heaven and hell. So, You know, if you look at just the Old Testament, it's not terribly clear. There was room for this disagreement, although I think in the New Testament you really do find more evidence that we are souls and that we are a kind of hybrid between soul and just purely a physical being. This sounds like a pretty radical
0: idea to be getting from the Bible, sounds to me, because it seems, you know, my understanding of the New Testament, it's pretty clear that we're more than just physical beings. Right. I'm surprised, yeah. you know, that he would come to a conclusion like that.
1: Well, yeah, you know, he argues that, okay, well, the reason you are you have this cultural view that you've adopted and that you're kind of overlaying your cultural viewpoint on the scripture, and if you, you know, read it very carefully, you know, this kind of stuff, but of course that opens him up to the charge of doing the same thing, that he has this cultural view that of only physicalism, and that he can overlay that on to Scripture.
0: Right, or naturalism, which is what evolutionists practice.
1: Right, and I'm not saying that Glenn Peoples is an evolutionist, but apparently is a physicalist. Right. So, you know, but there are just a a couple of comments I guess I would make for our listener. It's true that in the Old Testament, soul can mean the entire you. You know, it, it doesn't necessarily mean the spirit inside you and you know we use this term even today when somebody says you know there was a plane crash and there were 130 souls on board you know they're talking about the whole person or you know or the people it's not necessarily that they mean the spirit dwelling inside the physical body right they're talking about the whole person right you know so there's leeway for meanings of words that can go both ways and one of the arguments seems to be that you know, if you say there are souls in some of the verses, then that would also imply that animals have souls. And so, they, they think that that's evidence against the soul. But actually, the classical traditional view of Christianity is that animals do have souls. So, they're just not as complex. They're not Their souls are not made in the image of God. Right. Um, their, their souls don't survive death. So, I don't see that as a very good argument. So, I'm really, you know... Uh, it's interesting, it's an interesting topic, because like I say, I've always been interested in that dichotomy, trichotomy view, but I would go, I think for our listener, Roy, I would check out some of the books by J.P. Moreland, who talks about this and talks about the dichotomy issue, the trichotomy issue, and addresses physicalism. I can't, unfortunately, I just can't come up off the top of my head with a specific book to read, but I know he's covered this, and he did cover it in class when I was at Biola. So I would look at for something by J.P. Moreland. I think you'll find a uh, helpful argument there. But it's kind of an inside argument. I'd like to see a book that maybe delves into the evidences on each side. And I do think we should be open to all the evidence. And so I'm um, open to the possibility that, you know, for 2,000 years we've been mistaken and we ought to really be thinking of ourselves only as physical but I just kind of think it's a little unlikely. I think we well, would agree a, with you. <laughs> uh, well, we've got another uh, email here. This one's from Claudia. Claudia says, Hi, guys. I just started listening to the podcast. I've been collecting from your show. She says I download way more than I have time to attend to. <laughs> she says uh, "She says, I'm enjoying it greatly, and thank you for what you're doing. And then basically she makes a suggestion about some things that we could add to our website. She'd like us to add a section where maybe we could have reference materials and talk about the people that we talk about and quotations that we reference and things where you know people could look at books and stuff. And she suggests that we create a blog and all that. So it's all lovely. It's things that we have tried to do or, or at least are kind of in the process and planning stages for, but we just haven't been able to get it done. And she finishes her email, in any case, I thought I'd let you know my wishes, God's continued blessings, Claudia. So that was great. Shout out to Claudia, one of our listeners. And Kirk, I think I mentioned to you earlier that we had a listener that I got to meet in town here, living in town. He came from Puerto Rico and he used to listen to the show when he was in Puerto Rico. Yeah. So that was kind of fun meeting him. I love it when we get to meet the listeners in person. Yeah. So we met. I met somebody from Australia, and I met somebody now f- from Puerto Rico listens. Obviously,
0: obviously, they're not listening to us uh, on their radio with rabbit ears.
1: No, I don't think the Delaware Valley Station quite reaches out there, although I've heard <laughs> it all the way down into Wilmington, Delaware and Newark, Delaware, so that's pretty far. Yeah, I didn't
0: realize it went that far.
1: Yeah, no, we've got a, a big... Uh, big listening audience. And sometimes I make the mistake of saying Southern New Jersey, but it actually extends across the Delaware River. So we have listeners that are down south. Well, Kirk, let's dig into our topic today. Evolution is a big topic. We'll probably be covering it for a couple of weeks. And it's an exciting topic. Really, lots of new things have been coming out in the past even just five years. So there's so much to cover. It seems like to me at least, that there's a paradigm shift going on. There's a real sea change happening in the world of science. If you look at a book, there's a historian of science, a philosopher of science by the name of Thomas Kuhn. In 1962, he wrote a book called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. And he proposed that science advances by revolutions and that you have these big tidal sea changes that happen you know, all at once, basically. Mm-hmm. And he gives a description of how this happens. He says, first, it it usually involves a debate over the definition of science. And don't we have that today? We sh- yeah, we sure do. <laughs> when, you know, you remember the atheists that we debated, one of their big things was, what is the definition of science? Right. And, you know, is it naturalistic atheism or is it open to theistic concepts like the existence of an intelligent designer. Right. Then he points out you know, that, that these paradigm shifts are also, that these these situations happen when the scientific community is divided into two parties. Well, again, today we've got a big division. We have more and more scientists who are coming out of the closet, so to speak, saying that they are intelligent design scientists. And some big names now, Jonathan Wells, who has a dual Ph.D. in cell biology, Ph.D. from Yale and Ph.D. from Berkeley and other big names getting their Ph.D.s at at big institutions and saying up front that they are intelligent design advocates. So, So we're definitely seeing that dichotomy, that division between parties in the scientific community. Yes, and I think
0: there's there's more scientists that are at least uh, more willing than they used to be to admit the possibility of an intelligent designer than before.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, back when I got saved, there was so little information on evolution and the experts tended to be things like chemical engineers, you know, people who were… Um, familiar with the arguments for evolution, but were not exactly in the field where they were pressured to conform. They had kind of an outside objective viewpoint. They could see the problems with evolution from an engineering standpoint, from a chemistry standpoint, from a mathematics standpoint. That's where a lot of the criticisms were coming from. But nowadays, it's from within the fields themselves, the biologists and cell biologists and paleontologists. So that's a, so we really are living in an exciting time. And then Thomas Kuhn goes on and says that this paradigm shift turns on the question of which paradigm will control future investigation. So, you know, and, and we see that happening more and more where the intelligent design people have had to set up their own institutions and get, go out and get funding to support their research so that they could investigate their hypotheses.
0: right. And one of the major institutions, of course, is the uh, Instita- Institution for Creation Research, which uh, has a monthly magazine. And they, they were uh, located in California until recently, but they moved their uh, offices to Texas. But they're, there, they're well, very prominent in, uh, you know, the, the uh, creation field.
1: Yep, there are many of them, Discovery Institute and others. There are biological institutes that are doing hands-on research, lab work on trying to see what the limits of evolution are. So it's really uh, amazing what's happening. Yeah. And Kuhn says that it's also precipitated by the young researchers in a field who are not personally involved in the old paradigms community. So those who are maybe not the you know, professors who've been teaching for 30 years, uh, who've got a vested interest, they've got so many books out and things. Right. These are young upcoming scientists who are just excited by the new information and looking to research and and seeing what's really out there instead of being stopped by some of the evolutionary science stoppers, like the fact that most of DNA is junk DNA. So, of course, why are you going to research it if it's just junk? But these young scientists are ignoring that bad advice, examining some of this so-called junk DNA and finding out that they really do have purpose and they're actually useful things like vestigial organs in the past another science stopper evolution put a, a blinders on and said oh these things are vestigial organs there's no reason to look at them they don't do anything and turned out that they actually were very important yeah isn't that
0: the way change usually comes across as a younger generation comes along and not bound by the intellectual rules of the previous generation they just go off in a new direction and they that's how things are discovered exactly
1: Now, as we're beginning this, we should do a little bit of definitions for people because we're going to be talking about creationists and what creationists believe. So what do we mean by creationists? Well, I don't mean just those who believe in a young earth. And sometimes when you hear arguments by evolutionists, they will substitute these words around and they'll talk about people who are, say, theistic evolutionists and they'll call them creationists and then, and by that they mean that God created. And of course, the theistic evolutionist who believes in an old Earth, they would agree that they're creationists in that sense. But then the the atheist or the evolutionist will switch terms and talk about young Earth creationists, and try to paint them with that brush. So when we're talking about creationists, we're talking about anyone who believes that God created the universe, God created life, and. So, whether it's a theistic evolutionist or a young earth or an old earth creationist, it's as long as you believe that God created, that's what we're talking about as creationists.
0: We're speaking generally.
1: That's right. So, don't be confused by that as we go along. So, what is it then that creationists believe or don't believe? Well, one of the things that gets confusing is from this argument of the fixity of species, some evolutionists claim that creationists believe that species don't change, okay? And originally, when Darwin first started publishing his work, there was this belief by some biologists and some in the field on the fixity of species. And the problem is we don't believe in that anymore. So species we know do change and change over time. Because species is basically just a man-made nomenclature to say that, okay, I'm looking at a certain type of animal, it has a certain characteristics, it has certain colorings, certain markings, certain size and shape, and if I find an animal, another animal that is very similar to it but is slightly different, I can name that a different species for the most part. there's mm. There's a little bit more rules to it, but basically… Right. That's the way things are, and so it can be very confusing, but it helps to, I think, sort things out if you realize in this argument that creationists don't believe in the fixity of species. So they believe, for instance, that the Middle Eastern wolf was the progenitor or the ancestor of all the different kinds of dog species like foxes and hounds and you know, from Great Danes to chihuahuas, all of them stemmed from a common ancestor, the Middle Eastern wolf.
0: I was just thinking about like dogs and cats, how you can say dogs and cats, but look at how many different kinds of dogs there are. And even if you count all the wild cats and everything, how many different kinds of cats there are.
1: Oh, absolutely. From leopards to house cats.
0: I just read an article the other day in National Geographic magazine about all the different kinds of of cats in the world, and it's uh, I did not realize how many different ones there actually were. There are hundreds.
1: Yep. That's right, and so all of this fits into a creationist view that you can, you know, you could take maybe leopards and breed them into some kind of small house cat as a possibility. And so you'd be breeding it, you know, essentially a, a different species, but it's still part of the total genome for cats or the cat kind. It's still part of the cat family. Right. Now, another thing that's confusing for people who are just learning about the argument between evolution and creation is uh, they don't realize that creationists do believe in natural selection. Oh, surprise. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You know, they, they think that if you're arguing against evolution, you must be arguing against natural selection. And of course, that's not true. You know, natural selection is a very accepted in fact i don't know of any creationists who think that natural selection is not something real so uh, it's just that they think that natural selection doesn't have creative powers right and and the idea of natural selection goes back far beyond darwin before darwin he didn't really originate the idea of natural selection you know the this idea that human beings might have essentially walked out of the forest or the jungle uh, really can be traced back to the Greeks, but as specifically about natural selection being survival of the fittest, we can trace that back to a creationist scientist by the name of Edward Blythe, who published the idea as a conservative or a quality control force back in 1835, and actually that article is found in Darwin's library with his handwritten notes in the margins. That, of course, I'm sure you all realize that was long before he published The Origin of the Species right. in 1859. Right. And Blythe gave, now Blythe didn't call it natural selection, he basically called it selection of nature or selection by nature and gave the example of a predator adapting to a change in his food source. And he believed that it was a quality control thing, kind of a, it would conserve the, the wild type, and that that wild type might have to change temporarily to adapt to a new situation, for instance, a change in a food source, right? and then it would later go back to the wild type. So, what Darwin did, the new thing that Darwin did was that he ascribed creative powers to natural selection.
0: He really went a lot further with it.
1: Yeah, said that, you know, we don't need God, we've got natural selection, and that's enough to create new species. And that's where we get the, he got the title, The Origin of Species. He basically came
0: up with the idea that natural selection can cre- create pretty much anything.
1: Is yeah, that absolutely, accurate? from microbes to microbiologists. Right. And everything in between. Right. All right, there's another important term that we need to go over. And that's the difference between micro and macro evolution. And this gets confusing for people. You know, we've had several emails in the past where people have tried to argue this concept of micro and macro evolution. And, and this distinction between these two types of evolution is not something that creationists created. This actually comes from the evolutionist Theodosius Dobzhansky. I don't know if you're familiar with him. Kirk, he was a big evolutionist writer in the 30s and 40s and 50s. In fact, I remember one of my professors in when I was going to nursing school, we were talking about evolution, and I was giving him some of the arguments against, and he wanted me to read a book, and it was by this fellow, Dobzanski. So he describes this difference between micro and macro evolution, and it's a distinction that creationists make all the time because it's very very important to the argument against evolution
0: yes it is
1: so, so microevolution is adaptation channeled by natural selection to produce variety within the genome or the genetic expression of existing gene pools okay so all right well that was a lot <laughs> what's a gene pool well a gene pool is all of the genetic information that's available to a certain type of animal, okay? So all of the genes that might in some way be related to dogs, let's put it that way. And that doesn't mean that any particular dog has all those genes in them, right? You know, you can well imagine that a wolf might have certain genes that a chihuahua does not have, and vice versa. Right. But all of those genes are in the one pool of or called a genome and natural selection can act on that genetic information to produce differences in animals just as human breeders can artificially select amongst dogs and create a kind of a breed that they're looking for. So that's an example of micro evolution. It's also could be called adaptation and it's the work of natural selection on the genome, and that, as again, I as I said, creationists do believe in natural selection.
0: While you're saying that, I'm I'm thinking: would it be fair to like compare this to the idea that you know the human gene pool has um, the capability there of a lot of different kinds of hair color like brown and black and blonde and red and whatever but that doesn't necessarily mean like your particular family line may not have the red gene so none of their kids are going to have red hair but that doesn't mean that that possibility isn't there in the human genome it's just that one particular line of family members may not have that particular gene
1: exactly right so and that's why we see differences in people. Right. So that's microevolution, that's adaptation, that's variety
0: right. within it's not, a kind. It's not, you know, we're not seeing human beings being born with purple hair or green hair or whatever. There's there's a limit to the capability for hair color, but those you know, the the, the capabilities there within the whole race. It's just, you know, some people tend toward one color. some people tend toward another.
1: Yeah, depending on the gene expression that they have. That's right. Right. Well, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. We're talking about evolution and the arguments and evidence against evolution. All right, Kirk, so let's continue on this difference between micro and macro evolution. So macroevolution then, what's macroevolution, okay? If we've talked about what microevolution is, macroevolution is the theoretical addition of new genetic information to a gene pool, okay? So in other words, this gene pool, the set of genes that are used by a type of organism suddenly gains new information, okay? And that changes that type into a different type. So. You know, I guess classically we might talk about dinosaurs becoming birds or maybe the wolf-like creature turning into a whale, as scientists claim has happened in the past.
0: Or even simpler, like a turtle becoming a crocodile or something like that.
1: Yeah, or vice versa. So that's what we're calling macroevolution. That's the addition of new genetic information. So the sudden new feature... Like a hard shell on the outside of a reptile and makes it into a turtle. Right. Or maybe it could be a something like a chemical pathway, you know, like a new way of changing sunlight into energy, a new type of chlorophyll uh, suddenly appearing into a plant population. That would be an example of macroevolution. Right. And that is where we have a problem.
0: This is the controversial part. ...about that's evolution right. that creationists have an argument with.
1: That's right. And We're that's zeroing
0: in on exactly what creationists disagree with here.
1: That's right. Yeah, it's macroevolution, not microevolution.
0: That new and- gene information can, f- by whatever process, can suddenly appear to change one species or creature into a totally different kind.
1: Right. Yep. And... You know, you don't hear evolutionists talking about this. They don't talk about the difference between micro and macro. What they do is conflate the two concepts. So they try to pretend there's no difference. And what they'll do is use the evidence for microevolution and try to prove macroevolution with the evidence of microevolution.
0: Right. But again, they lump it all together.
1: Yeah. We don't have problems with microevolution. We have problems with macroevolution.
0: We don't have any problem with the idea of animals adapting to their circumstances, you know, to a certain degree.
1: Exactly. And all the evidence that's used to support evolution, whether it's bacterial resistance or it's peppered moths or any of the standard evidences that you hear talked about, these are all examples of microevolution or just plain old natural selection, which we agree with.
0: Or adaptation. Within yeah, that's limits just another adaptation another name. within limits
1: yep so when someone asks you you know do you believe in evolution well <laughs> you should ask okay what kind of evolution are you talking about are you talking about micro or macro <laughs> or I guess if you're if you're a student being graded by a professor and he asks you do do you believe in evolution you could say yes or you could say no because since the person hasn't explained what type of evolution they're talking about You can say, yes, I believe in evolution because I believe in microevolution.
0: You could actually say yes and no (laughs) and be accurate. Yeah,
1: Yeah, there you go. Yes and no in a different way. (laughs) So Darwin's theory then is an incredibly good theory at explaining variation, right? It's natural selection. It's the theory of how natural selection works and it's very good at explaining all the varieties of animals. And if you want to name those different varieties as different species, then in a sense, okay, in a sense you're talking about the origin of some species. The problem with Darwinian's, uh, Darwinian evolution or Darwin's theory is that it's very poor at explaining complexity. It's really poor at explaining where complex things come from Right. Because complex items like organs and chemical pathways, they're complex. They're made up of multiple parts. So how is it that they come about bit by bit as Darwin explained? Right. Well, so what did Darwin do? He explained that there was this naturalistic mechanism, right? Entirely naturalistic. And he proposed that that explained where complexity comes from but that we have found and in the past few decades we now know that that's no longer true that life is intelligently designed and we have actual hard evidence that life is designed
0: and microbiology is really advancing that point of view
1: that's right and so in a few weeks we will look at the hard evidence that supports intelligent design but for now we're going to Look at some of the problems with Darwin's idea that natural selection is enough to create macroevolution. Now, Darwin thought that selection, natural selection, worked on every tiny advantage, and he used that terminology. So, even tiny little changes were enough to make a difference for organisms to advance and to adapt. We now know from what's called population biology. That this isn't true, that actually it takes a lot more than just tiny advantages to create what's called a fixation within a population. So, if you have a, a new gene, let's say there's a new gene, something has mutated, a gene has mutated, and it's now new and it serves a certain purpose, it has to have an advantage on the order of 10% or greater for survivability. So, in other words, it has to be the kind of, say, if you are a creature that typically has 10 offspring during your lifespan, it would have to be, give you a 10% advantage. So it would have to, say, be able to, you'd have to be able to produce 11 offspring, for instance. It has to be a fairly significant change in order to be able to become fixed in a population. And what right. that means is that for that gene to, to become permanent, it has to get into most of the population. So, you know, let's say, um, oh, let's do rabbits that are have white fur and can survive in arctic conditions. Right. Well, if you've got the gene for making white fur, and you're the only rabbit, you know, you're it, it's that gene's not going to survive. That gene has to become part of the entire population that's living say in the Arctic region not all rabbits of course but that at least that population so the ones that have brown fur have to die off and that old genetic information has to die off otherwise the white rabbit I mean you can imagine what would happen to the genetic information of a white rabbit if you threw it into a population that's all brown rabbits what do you think would happen?
2: Well you
0: Probably not have any more white rabbits.
1: Exactly. That's exactly right. So population geneticists have shown that it's not good enough to just have a tiny change. You actually have to have a pretty major change. In other words, you've got to have some significant force that's going to kill off the brown rabbits and leave the white rabbits alive. Right. So that's one of the problems that we have with Darwinian evolution.
0: So it's really difficult for a new trait to entrench itself. Yes,
1: exactly right. In a creature. Yeah, that's right. And that's different from what Darwin proposed. Right. Now, problems with evolution. Darwin recognized himself that there were problems with his theory. He recognized four objections.
0: He was actually somewhat honest in his, his book about some of the objections.
1: That's Right. And that was actually one of the appeals to his book and one of the reasons why his book was so popular is because he was fairly open and honest about the objections to his theory. Right. And he just kind of, you know, through wishful thinking thought that, well, in the future we'll have answers to these. Right. Well, we're well into the future and there are still the same problems, the same objections. Right. So the four objections that he recognized was a lack of transitional forms. Okay. Okay. So the lack of intermediaries between different kinds of animals. Right. The incredible complexity of organs such as the eye, or which the he brain. recognized as being very complex and very difficult to imagine how anything like that could have evolved through natural selection. Right. The development of instincts in animals, he thought that was a good argument against his theory, and also the sterility in cross-breeding of species. So. When you've got species that are fairly similar, but either won't crossbreed, or if you do crossbreed them, the offspring are sterile. To him, that didn't seem to make much sense. Right. So, he didn't, and, and what it really shows is that there are limitations to the genetic information. Right. And you can only stretch it so far. Right. So, all of those objections that Darwin talked about in his book are still with us today more than still,
0: more than 150 years later there's still problems
1: that's right so we've got this problem of mutations and you know are they big enough to make any change okay darwin talked about these you know every tiny little change would make a difference and we now know that's not true also we we know a lot more about mutations of course Darwin didn't even know about genes, didn't know about mutations. He wasn't sure exactly how this was happening. And that's why modern Darwinism is called neo-Darwinism Neo-Darwin- because it now uses this information about mutations and genes. Right. They've had to modify
0: Darwin's theory a bit to uh, align with newer information.
1: That's right. So mutations are believed to be now that driving force, that, those tiny little changes that Darwin was talking about. The problem is that the vast majority of mutations are just really too insignificant to have any influence on fitness. So if they're insignificant, then they don't get eliminated. Yet the problem is that mutations are still a change. It's still a change from what the original looked like. So these mutations will accumulate over time. And it's relentless. It's like rust on a bridge. So maybe on a bridge you don't have a beam collapsing, but you do have rust building up slowly, slowly, slowly over time. And that bridge is eventually going to collapse. And the same thing is happening with the genetic information in organisms.
2: Right.
1: The genetic information is becoming more and more rusty or more and more... Mutated and all of us will eventually go extinct.
0: We could kind of relate this to uh, the increase in uh, disease and stuff uh, as you go from generation to generation, too, couldn't we? Like, for instance, you know, new diseases seem to be popping up and being discovered all the time. And it's like, isn't this probably a byproduct of some of the, like you say, the rust accumulating in our genes?
1: Yeah, absolutely. There are a lot of genetic diseases that are becoming more and more prevalent. We're, we're, prevalent. we're slowly
0: breaking down genetically.
1: That's right. And, you know, a, a machine can continue to function while rust accumulates, but that rust isn't doing anything to make the machine improved, right? right? It's not getting better as it gets rusty. It's only facing certain failure and, in our case, certain extinction.
0: Yeah, I have some rust getting a hold of my car in one spot, and it's spreading kind of rapidly.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't uh, improve things at all. It just makes things worse. No. (laughs) So Darwin thought that producing more offspring than a competitor is what was the primary driving force. And just an observation about this, it's funny because if this were true, then you would expect... That higher species, right, more diversified, more complex, more advanced species would produce more offspring than simpler life forms, and that's just clearly not the case. I mean, bacteria have plenty more offspring than human beings, and so do many many kinds of animals. And really,
0: actually, when you think about it, the more complex the animal, the fewer offspring.
1: Right. Would that be fair to to say? That's, that's – I think that's pretty fair and it's totally contrary to the kind of mechanism that could be a driving force to cause evolutionary change.
0: Right. You know, you think about human beings, you know, I mean, how many babies can a woman have in her lifetime, you know? But then you think about, well, bacteria, you know, what are they – they reproduce like millions and billions of times or something?
1: Right, or even mice or rabbits.
0: Right, rabbits, uh, that's a good example.
1: <laughs> uh, fruit flies, you know, all kinds of lower animals are actually better reproducers than higher animals, you know, elephants or porpoises or right. beings. Right, right. So this seems to be in a direct contradiction to Darwin's theories.
2: It does, uh, doesn't
1: it? Uh, another problem is the concept of aging. You know, where do, wh- why do animals age and die? certainly evolution could have done a better job at just simply allowing a organism to survive longer and therefore produce more offspring right so you know there's all these kind of odd objections that just really show that darwin's theories just don't fit the real world you know i always wondered even when i was an evolutionist i wondered why is it that human beings you know don't have claws and armor and sharp teeth and Things like that, you know, right. a, a simple thing.
0: Aren't we for better? Why aren't we better do. equipped to survive than we are?
1: <laughs> That's right. All yeah, right.
0: Very interesting.
1: Let's remind everybody: if you're just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks,
0: and I'm Kirk Hastings.
1: So most mutations do nothing, okay? And those that do do something, well, guess what? Turns out that they are usually harmful. And yes, the, the vast majority
0: of, of them are harmful. Is that right?
1: Oh, yeah, by far. Yeah. So, most mutations don't do anything. Part of that is because there are many backup systems in different organisms. Right. So, again, another problem for evolution, why are there backup systems? Uh, it's not something that natural selection would be able to modify or adapt based on because you, if you've got two systems that can do the same job, you're only using one of them at a time. So the organism wouldn't be able to adapt the other system, and the other system would simply mutate and fall apart, being unused. Right. So most mutations do nothing. Those that do do something, it's usually harmful. It's usually some kind of maladaption, death of the organism, that kind of thing. Sure. So also it turns out that the kinds of changes that are required to originate new structures are what's called multifarious okay what does that mean well new structures have to be built up by multiple genes okay it you you can't just build a new structure based on a new mutation right you've got to have multiple multiple changes to genes happening simultaneously right Sing, single mutations are just really incapable of producing beneficial change. Now, you can have examples of a single mutation where it does something simple. For instance, it might change color. Okay, So you could have a simple mutation, a single mutation that changes fur color or the coloration on a butterfly's wing or uh, something along that line. And then the organism could use that as a benefit. But that's not the kind of changes that we're talking about that would change one creature into another. Right. So, really, you have to have these multiple, multiple changes going on simultaneously. So, you might call them adaptational packages, right? Whole packages of information are necessary to create new kinds of organisms or organisms that have new features. So, for example, we might talk about a giraffe's neck, right? Uh Or how do we get a giraffe? Well, you need more than just the neck, right? You just can't just take a regular animal, stretch its neck out, and call it a giraffe. It'll (laughs) it'll die, right? The whole, all kinds of things go together to make a giraffe.
0: They have to have a whole different circulatory system and blood pressure changes and all kinds of things to make that work.
1: That's right. Even a new type of heart. To pump the blood up so high. Right. So And all of those things then work together so that the giraffe, you know, when he, he, he's he got this massive heart pumping, um, all this high pressure blood up so high. Well, then what happens when he lowers his head down to the water to drink? You know, he'd blow his brains out <laughs> or or vice versa. Right. Let's say you had a low pressure system, you, you know, so to provide blood. Uh, while he's drinking, then he raises his head and he's going to pass out. Right. So there are special systems built into the giraffe that allow, there are sponge-like uh, systems that hold blood so that his brain will have blood when he lifts his head back up. And just these right. amazing, what we call, adaptational packages. And you don't that- think
0: about all those little details like that. When you look at a giraffe, You don't. you just think, well, he has a long neck. But you don't realize... All the different systems he has to have in his body to make that long neck work for him. Exactly right, and it's a very complex system when you get into it.
1: And if you did only have, say, let's say they got that the you had an animal without a long neck, but he got those sponge-like things in his brain that would hold the hold the blood. Well, it would serve no purpose. So it would mutate away. There, you know, the these changes if they were done one by one would serve no purpose until everything is in place. Right. So, again, a real problem for Darwinian evolution. We have to have an integrated, systematic change with massive amounts of information all at the same time. And the only way we know to get that kind of change is through intelligence. Intelligence is the only source we know of that can do those massive amounts of new information. Information just comes from intelligence. Another
0: example of what you're talking about I just thought of was if you consider like a car engine, you can't construct a car engine a screw at a time. Until you have the entire engine, you don't have anything useful.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's not going to work. Right. So it's not going to be something that could sort of, what we would say, stay alive.
0: Right, it's just going to right. be a collection of nuts and bolts until you have all the parts together and you can start it.
1: Then right, and even if something small is missing, you know that engine won't start. Oh right. So,
0: we've had that problem uh, this past year. We've had about half a dozen car repairs. It's like every little thing that that stops functioning in your car, you know, all of a sudden your car doesn't work.
1: Absolutely. Well, Let's, let's go on to something that I think is an interesting evidence against Darwinism, and it's a falsifying observation that Darwin actually discovered himself, and he just didn't realize how anti-evolutionary it was. <laughs> His own breeding experiments that he did led him to discover, quote, the principle of reversion to ancestral characters, Now, that's how he described it, and this was actually also demonstrated by Mendel, who was working with his, you know, trying to discover the uh, source of genetic information, and they both discovered this principle of reversion to ancestral characters, and it's something that Blythe also talked about, that animals will tend towards their wild type. So, Darwin bred pigeons and rabbits and they would revert back to their wild type if they were left alone. He had to actually separate them and keep them from interbreeding. Otherwise, they'd revert back to their ancestral characteristics. And, you know, Kirk, this is one way that the scientists who are involved with flu vaccines, you know that there are many different strains. Each year, there are many different strains of flu that come out. And do you know how they can tell which strain of flu they should make the flu vaccine for?
0: No, I never thought about it.
1: Well, they look to see which strain of the flu is closest to the wild type. Really? Yeah, not the strain that's furthest away, but the one that's closest to because they know that all of this variation in the different types of flu strains all revert back to that one common ancestral type. The same thing with dogs. You can have purebred dogs. What happens if you let them out in the neighborhood? They <laughs> revert back to the wild type. They don't yep. stay purebred. You'll so this end up a- with a mongrel again. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly right. And this is very strong evidence against evolution. It's a falsifying observation. So pigeons bring forth pigeons and nothing but pigeons. And even Darwin argued that there was no doubt that all the varieties of ducks and rabbits had descended from a a common wild duck and wild rabbit. This is almost
0: like evolution in reverse you're talking about here.
1: Well, no, it's the biblical vision of kinds of animals. Right. So animals within certain kinds are able to diversify, they're able to have variety for the purposes of adaptation so animals were designed to adapt but when they don't need to adapt they interbreed and they revert back to the wild type so even viruses do this ducks do it rabbits do it pigeons do it dogs do it (laughs) everything will revert back to its wild type if it can interbreed with the distant populations right well You've been listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. You can send your comments or questions to email at evidenceforfaith.com. And join us again next week for more reasons to believe. And always remember that the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true.